This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. When Democrat Bill Ritter ran for governor in 2006, he made renewable energy a big focus of his campaign. In Colorado, the future is building wind farms and wheat fields and making Colorado universities research leaders in renewable energy. But in Washington, Congress works for big oil, not to make America energy independent. Ritter was elected, served four years, and left office in 2011, but not before signing 57 new laws changing the state's energy policy. He moved on to Colorado State University, where he's the founding director of the Center for the New Energy Economy. And in a new book called Powering Forward, he calls for revolution. Quote, it is bloodless, but not gutless. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. It is so good to see you again. Good to be back on your show. We'll talk more about this revolution in a moment. But first, you write that there was some disagreement among your advisors about making new energy a plank in your platform. Uh, Quoting from the book, as the election approached, the state was enjoying a boom in natural gas production and the Department of Energy had concluded Colorado was part of a region that would become the major source of the nation's fossil fuels. How did you calculate the political risk of making renewable energy so central to your campaign? Well, the part about natural gas, we we thought that it could also be part of a clean energy economy. We just had to rework the rules in a very significant way. No state had modernized the rules since hydraulic fracturing. And there are all sorts of environmental consequences flowing from that. And so we said this is going to be tough, but we can also try and talk to the gas producers, the oil and gas producers, and help them understand what part they could play in this energy transition. And the other part of it, as I say in the book, there were a lot of uh, unconventional allies in a transition to a clean energy economy. If you think about what has happened in Colorado, there's recently a story about $9 million in lease payments of wind turbines that's happened in rural Colorado. We saw that as a possibility in a way to sort of get the agricultural community, or at least parts of it, engaged in this clean energy transition. Part of an economy that might have looked to oil and gas for revenue. Well, it certainly does. I mean, Weld County at one time was the largest oil and gas producing county, or it had the most rigs operating of any county in America. And and so to think about how, you know, this all works when you're trying to create, create a clean energy economy and works together was part of our challenge, but also what we thought of as a tremendous opportunity. For the same uh, regions of the state, your book starts with some history. Quote, so far as we know, the first U.S. president alerted to climate change was, and you finish the sentence for me, who was it? Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson. I was surprised to read that. And he often talked about the environment in terms of beauty. Here is some of a speech from Johnson delivered in 1965. This was the same year that he mentioned carbon in the atmosphere to Congress. The technology which has given us everything from the computer to the teleprompter has created a hundred sources of blight. Poisons and chemicals pollute our air and our water. Automobiles litter our countryside. These and other waste products of progress are among the deadliest enemies that natural beauty has ever known. You write, had we confronted climate change and oil addiction when they first came to our attention, addressing these problems would have been far cheaper and less disruptive than it will be today. Now, Governor, you began this conversation by saying that there was as much opportunity for folks in a new energy economy as in the old. And yet there you say that it has to be disruptive. 
What do you mean disruptive? Who And get specific with me. Who is disrupted? Well, it's going to be disrupted because um, of the energy, the, the, the sources by which we've produced energy. Think about 1965 and the kinds of things that we've experienced in terms of growth. And so much of what we paid attention to was not uh, the consequences that flowed from the energy production is the cost of it. And so that's been coal. Coal, uh, the least cost of energy for so long was producing coal, but coal comes with tremendous environmental consequences. Uh, we've taken we've taken on many of those. Sulfuric acid is something we established actually a cap-and-trade program for. Um, we have also tried to limit the uh, amount of nitrogen oxide. Uh, there are standards around mercury. There are ozone standards. There are things called regional hay standards. And now we're looking at carbon because of its impact on climate change as a greenhouse gas. And cost is central, central to the debate that is raging uh, in the courts right now, in the state legislature over the clean power plan. This is the president's plan. Uh, so, gosh, it seems that in 50 or 60 years, not much has changed. Well, actually, a lot's changed. There have been a lot of different states, and this is why we look to what's happened in the states, including Colorado. We faced all those arguments, Ryan, back in 2007 when I first took office about how much it would cost to make this transition. We have increased tenfold the amount of wind on the wires in Colorado, and the prices come down about 60 or 70 percent, even with the production tax credit at the time. Now still the production tax credit. There are deals on wind that are, you know, two and a half, two point seven 2.7 cents a kilowatt hour. The CEO of XL Energy, the, the corporate CEO, said, listen, the best long-term deal is wind because we built it out to scale. Uh, solar has come down in a tremendous way. I don't know if you saw the article yesterday in the Denver Post, but it said wind and solar are basically really doing so much better globally than fossil fuels. And they looked at these tremendous declines in prices of wind and solar and the amount of buildup of wind and solar at the same time. So I was just one part of a much bigger thing that's happening globally. And yet critics of the Clean Power Plan will point to reliability as a big question with solar and wind. We had those same, I mean, we had those same conversations back in 2007. It was about cost and it was about reliability. And we're able to manage that now. And, and actually, quite frankly, if you produce natural gas in the right way and you use it as what we call the firming fuel so that when the sun isn't shining, the wind's not blowing, you've got natural gas, you can still reduce your emissions in a tremendous way. You can still have reliability and you have a much cleaner uh, energy portfolio. I want to get beneath this whole question of will it cost more or won't it cost more because that, that debate continues. Do you think people would be willing to pay more for clean energy? The assumption there is that people wouldn't. So it's not just my thinking, right? Colorado College has done several polls on this over the last few years. They call it the state of the Western mind. This is the voters in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. So some pretty conservative states, some pretty states that have invested heavily in fossil fuels, including Colorado. And the voters say they would be willing. First of all, that's what they want. They want more clean energy on the wires. And yes, they would be willing to pay more. Now, how much more is a good question. But this is a false choice that we're forced into making sometimes by the policymakers who debate this, we have found in Colorado it wasn't necessary to look to the voters and say you're going to pay more. The cost of wind has come down tremendously. The cost of solar down tremendously. The cost of natural gas has remained fairly cheap. And so all this about uh, that, that clean air, clean jobs that I signed in 2010, they said this is going to be so expensive. The folks in coal came in and testified in front of the PUC 
Uh, Excel just filed something saying the person who's kind of the average user in Colorado is only paying five cents more a month, 60 cents a year on average, to uh, get that kind of a clean portfolio. PUC, the Public Utilities Commission. Let's pick our conversation back up after a break. We're speaking with Colorado's 41st governor, Bill Ritter, about powering forward his new book, What Everyone Should Know About America's Energy Revolution, coming up, How to Bridge the Ideological Divide. This is CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's return to my conversation with Bill Ritter, former governor of Colorado. He's written a new book. It's called Powering Forward, What Everyone Should Know About America's Energy Revolution. Renewable energy played a big role in his term as governor, and he continues to be influential as founder of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. You write that one way to cross the ideological divide is to talk about climate change in terms of risk management. Why is that a point of agreement? Because uh, risk management is something that goes ahead and impacts markets in a very serious way. Um, As shareholders look at their investments and understand there's risk out there, and that risk comes from a changing climate and from a lot of different negative effects that could result, then they are demanding that the major boards of, you know, of big companies have to respond in a way. Utilities have to look at risk management and understand both what the risk is to their business model as we transition to this different energy economy, but they also have to ask what the risk is to their infrastructure. Those are market-based discussions, and this is something that can bridge the ideological divide because it seems to me on both sides of the aisle, people care a lot about risk, but for those folks who push back against climate change, they're watching what's happening in the markets and understanding there is probably a far less promising role for coal-fired generation in the future. Unless you figure out some way to sequester the carbon, there's less promising future. And that's markets. Those are markets that are making, helping make those decisions. And it feels like Republicans, even on the right, you know, respond to that. Uh, my own sense in discussions, there's a climate caucus now that includes Republicans and Democrats inside the United States House of Representatives. There are now four governors that have signed on to a governor's accord that's a clean energy accord. We see all of these different places where actually there's more happening across the aisle than there's been for a very long time. And in that governor's group, there are Republicans? Yeah. governors. The governors of Massachusetts, uh, Michigan, Iowa, and Nevada, all four Republican governors, all four who signed on to this Clean Energy Accord and made really a commitment to transition to clean energy. Before the break, we were talking about costs. And there are costs uh, on the other side as well. You, you say that something called full cost accounting should be developed, that the EPA has taken a step towards this by trying to enact something called social costs of carbon. W- what is this? Well, I say in the book as well, one of the biggest market failures, and I'm not the only one saying this. There are a lot of people that have said it. One of the biggest market failures ever is to not capture the external costs of actually allowing carbon to CO2 to come out of the smokestack. There are all sorts of detriments, and we've socialized the detriment, meaning everybody experiences the detriment, but only a few people are capturing the profit of a coal-fired energy. So put a price on carbon. You have to say, listen, that costs us as a society something when it comes out of the smokestack, whether it's climate change generally or more specifically, whether it's public health. There are so many public health detriments that we experience from the way we produce energy, and we haven't captured that. We haven't made 
anyone pay the price for that, including ratepayers? But hasn't the effort to put a cost or a cap on carbon been enormously divisive in this country? Well, it was divisive. It, it wasn't all that divisive until about 2008, 2009. I really look at uh, President Obama's election as sort of this watershed. The Congress decided they could pass a cap-and-trade bill. They did. The Senate never took it up, and cap-and-trade became this tremendously divisive conversation. It became a four-letter word, even though we had a cap-and-trade program essentially on sulfur dioxide that worked pretty well. This element of, of, of uh, coal. Yes. And, and so, uh, so, yes, it is divisive, but there are a variety of ways still to do this. And, and there's still great hope that we can do it. And I think there's added um, interest in having some kind of a system that appropriately prices carbon so that we're not letting this external detriment you know, be visited upon all of society without trying to figure out what it really costs us. And if you do true cost accounting, then decisions made on energy production are going to in they're going to include that cost and you're going to find that you'll have a clean energy portfolio as a part of it. Well, let's take this away from the abstracts. What does it mean the social cost of carbon? What is it putting a price tag on? Exactly. Well, you can put a price tag definitely on the public health detriment. That's part of it. But you can also ask, what is the price we're paying to allow climate change to continue to keep um, keep putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere over time, what's that going to cost us? And, and it's difficult. It's not an easy thing to do. Right, well, let's take public health that as would, an example. That would include it. How would you start to put a, a price tag on public health to account for, I don't know, days where kids with asthma are having a particularly tough time or something? Well, there, there are medical costs to that. There, I mean, the human cost isn't even part of the social cost. You can just put a monetary, you can assign a monetary value to the health, the hospital visits, to the doctor's visits, just on kids with asthma. You can look at morbidity and mortality statistics as a result as well. Um, Christine Todd Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey, and I had a conversation about this. She said we should be talking far more about public health as another way to bridge this uh, ideological divide around climate change, just as an example, because you can cost those things out. We are speaking with former Colorado Governor Bill Ritter about his new book, Powering Forward. You devote a chapter of the book to what you call old thinking. One example is that new technologies will allow the world to continue to use fossil fuels and mitigate their effects. So geoengineering, uh, altering the atmosphere so that it reflects more sunlight into space. Another example is to promote the growth of algal blooms that can absorb carbon in the ocean. Why why shouldn't we be hopeful about those kinds of technologies? Well, um, here's here's the deal. The, there is a time element to this. We need to do this. One of the reasons I chose revolution as part of the title of the book, the subtitle of the book, is because I think this has to happen more quickly than what it might take to develop the kinds of technologies that could address this. We can do a variety of things. I mean, if people understand that the earth is a carbon sink, forests can absorb carbon, land can absorb carbon, the seas can absorb carbon, but there's a point where if deforestation becomes too great, there isn't there aren't sufficient force to absorb the carbon and and the uh, carbon balance is way out of whack and I think we're in that place right now so there's a variety of things that I know we can do but to think about this in terms of just technology I go back to what the Pope said in his encyclical that he published last summer he said technology is a two-edged sword there are a lot of really good things that can happen from it but if we rely only upon that to try and solve this problem we could fall very short so what in your mind needs to move faster than it is. And what gives you any hope that that could happen 
Well, there's so much happening at the state level. I mean, it, Congress is stalemated, there's, that's for sure. But I still see this as this mixture of technology, financing, and policy. And what could really help is for us to think about all three of those things moving together. This, this fight, this ideological fight that it's got to be either markets or policy is the wrong fight. It's got to be a mixture of both. And then financing follows that when there's enough market certainty based on both the policies and based upon sort of the trend in the market. So from my perspective, at the state level, if we just saw states kind of keep moving the uh, ball down the road in a fairly rapid fashion, looking at different ways to transition to a clean energy, that would be a part of it. The second thing, and I know I've got to do this quickly, the second thing, if the if as a nation we had a national energy policy and we said part of that's going to include less carbon and we put a price on carbon, that would absolutely accelerate the transition to a clean energy economy and I think do it rapidly enough for us to really make a tremendous difference in climate change. Before we go, I'd like to have you uh, comment on uh, some state policy. So in 2004, Colorado was the first state where citizens initiated a renewable energy standard, and it required that the state's investor-owned utilities generate 10% of electricity from renewables by 2015. Then the standard grew again to 30% by 2020. And we got a question from a listener um, he actually asked it of the current governor, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Larry Milosevic of Lafayette says that 30 percent target uh, has made Colorado a national leader, but says since Colorado has fallen behind other states. Yeah. Does, does Colorado very briefly need a stronger renewable energy standard than it even has today? Oregon has a 50 percent standard. California has a 50 percent standard. Colorado could grow its standard, but there are a variety of other things beyond renewable portfolio standards we could do. And, and Give me an example. Well, um, greater energy efficiency, looking at greater energy efficiency, we could just be part of a carbon market in other places around the country and just say, we're going to we're going to make money monetizing all of the things we do to push renewables. We could become part of a greater uh, Western energy market where we're tied into other parts of it and balancing across that entire Western geography. There would be an incentive to build out renewables. So RPS is a mandate. There are a lot of people that don't like mandates. It'd be very difficult to get that through the legislature. So instead of focusing on that, let's look at XL Energy and their filings in the PUC. They're trying to do a variety of things to push this. The economic incentives uh, are there just from the, the declining price curve and also pricing carbon. All of those things are part of the mix. It doesn't have to be an RPS, but there are a variety of things that you can do beyond an RPS that would make a tremendous difference. RPS. I, I know Renewable R-E-S. portfolio standard. Portfolio standard. All right, versus a renewable energy standard. They're both the same. Got it. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks. That Take care. That is former Governor Bill Ritter. He directs CSU's Center for the New Energy Economy, and his new book is Powering Forward, What Everyone Needs to Know About America's Energy Revolution, which he says will be bloodless but not gutless. Ritter will be at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax in Denver tonight. You can read an excerpt from the book at cprnews.org. When we come back, the Lumineers on fame, grief, and how they got their name. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Lumineers hit it big with songs like Ho Hey and Stubborn Love. Now, four years after their debut release, the Denver band has put out its sophomore album. Oh, Ophelia, you've been on my mind, girl, since the flood.
Some of the songs, like this one, Ophelia, are meditations on the band's fast rise to fame and what comes next. Keep in mind, their first album went platinum plus. They were nominated for Grammys. The president even included one of their tracks on his Spotify playlist. I sat down with singer and guitarist Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights, who plays drums and piano. Here's Wesley on the band's success. For me, I feel actually pretty pretty okay about it all. I, nothing really broke for me until I was nearly 30. So I think that alone, I'd sort of formed some idea of who I am and who I was at the time. That if You're not this, a child star, in yeah, other words. Yeah, and, and to be honest, if I was 18 or 19, I had enough trouble dealing with it around 30. It's really, it's just an odd thing to have people treat you, I guess, sort of differently and look at you differently. Um, it can go to people's heads. I can see how it would. But um, for me, I, I didn't really take it seriously because I stopped taking uh, seriously the sort of lack of anything happening and as though that was some indicator of that we weren't doing good things before anything broke. So. I see. That is to say you took the the lull that was before this uh, with a grain of salt and you're applying the same to fame. Yeah, just the idea of... Uh, I just like the idea of keeping your own score about your life and, and the things that you're doing in it and not having, not turning to some external keeper of that, you know, like, a, oh, this album's not half as good because it sold half the amount of records. I know that to be false, you know, by oh. by bands that I listen to and like anyway. So That is to say that you have bands you love who aren't necessarily all that popular. Yeah, and when we first moved here, you know, Nathaniel Rayleigh would be a good example of someone who's been doing it at a high level for a long time. And now he's getting levels of recognition uh, that I think could have came to him way back when we first moved here, I don't know, six years ago. Yeah. Nathaniel Rateliff, who's now with the, the Night Sweats, that's his latest uh, iteration. He's been with Born in the Flood before that. Uh, Jeremiah, on this notion of, of success, whether there's a curse to it, it's pure blessing. What, what do you make of it? I think it's a pure blessing in that uh, it's a it's prompted me to kind of frame my thinking differently. I think when we were the underdog, I never stopped and appreciated anything we were doing because we were always, me and Wes, driving the band, writing the songs. We always were trying to get the next gig. And for me, one of the things I always wanted to do was play Red Rocks and collectively between Wes and myself, played Letterman and go to Europe. And I thought though, between those three things, I thought that would give us maybe a decade of hard work to do it. And we did it you know, arguably too quickly to the point where, all right, well, I'm running out of checkpoints. I should just stop and really appreciate what's happening because this is incredible. And I don't think that was really ever in my character. I mean, I'm only 30 right now, but I think stopping to appreciate things and take a deep breath was not really in my forte. I think it was more, don't appreciate what I did yesterday. What can I do with Wes tomorrow and today? Yeah, I think also to add to that, we we have an audience that uh, was never there prior to the first album. That's sort of waiting for what we're going to do next and how they feel about it's out of our control. But just the idea that anyone would be waiting uh, for us, whether it's at a show where it sells out early or at all, or an album that people are interested in hearing, I think it's, uh, to me, I'd, I'd welcome that pressure. And I think mm. it's, a, it's, it's really, you know, a blessing in, in that way. Well, even people who, you know, perhaps weren't intimately familiar with your first album certainly were familiar with your first single. Oh, mm. hey, uh, because it was played so much on radio stations across the country. I've been trying to do it right. I've been living a lonely life. I've been sleeping here instead. I've been sleeping in my bed. 
you get sick of that song? No, never. I mean, they're all our children. And, uh, People get sick of their children sometimes. <laughs> sick of it, That's though. True. <laughs> That's true. Maybe that was a bad metaphor. I'm not a parent, but uh, I don't think I've ever been sick of any of our music. I think that – I think I became sick of three years of touring. I really wanted to get back to – to writing um, music with Wes. I felt like that was something that was getting lost in the endless touring. But, you know, songs like Hohe and Stubborn Love, they really opened up the keys, gave us the keys to the world. They allowed us to tour in new and foreign countries and allowed us to uh, shine light on the rest of the songs off that album. But you've had the experience of listening to a song too many times and starting to hate it. Someone else's song. Right. Is that why we hate songs eventually? It's because there's someone else's. Well, in I other think, words, yeah, I think I'm sorry I cut you off. No, no, I was just in the dentist yesterday and it was playing. Uh, <laughs> you had your I mouth was, open in the yep. chair, and then I went to Fun Six and it was playing there. This is a fun restaurant. Today, yeah. you know, to this day, you know, it's still being played, and I think I just uh, that's odd to me because I don't know if any song deserves that much play. It's just not that's not natural. <laughs> we would stick it second or third in every set eventually because we had a whole album that we were proud of and we we connected with and I felt like if that's what you're here for then here I'll I'll make it easy for you and then you can leave after that or you can stay and see what else is on this record Hmm. Uh, and I've been to shows where the person holds back the big songs till the end and I always resented that or don't play them at all (laughs) yeah and I sort of resented that Uh, so for me I wanted to sort of say hey I recognize that some people maybe came with a friend and aren't familiar with the whole catalog but let's just put it out here for you and then you can make your own decision later but it turned out to be i think a helpful thing because people did realize that there was a full record there and uh to be listened to yeah and the more i listened to that record and i'll say that that uh, ho hey was my introduction to it it was so refreshing because it was not um kind of like one hit wonder territory there, there were so many other good songs on the album um, not everyone can say that, I guess, you know, who has a big hit, breakout hit. Mm. So basically four years between the first and the second album. And that was, I guess, Jeremiah, because of the touring. There was just such an emphasis on that. We tried to write, but it was difficult to do it remotely. It just wasn't in our wheelhouse. I mean, it wasn't – we were trying to not lose that that muscle of songwriting because that was a big fear. You know, tour two and a half, three years, and then you're supposed to just go back in the studio and start working out again. And if you let that muscle atrophy, it's, it's dangerous territory. What is it about the road that is not conducive to, to songwriting? Is it the hours? Is it just, just like there's just not enough time? The biggest challenge wasn't was realizing how we write songs, I guess. By the end of it, I started to understand more of that and the history of that. But I, at the time, I wanted to make a song, Soup to Nuts, an entire, I'd call it a demo, a fleshed out demo on the road. And What I started to realize was we don't really write that way. We write in these small little, here's a little jam, here's a little nugget here, and you sort of collect those like for the winter. (laughs) And then eventually you just take stock of what you have and you start to separate them into piles. Hey, this is a really great idea. This is just okay. This is bad. And then you have these things. And when you sit down and you, you go to make the next record, that's how we write as opposed to this sort of linear, I sat down and I wrote the verse, chorus, bridge. Now we're going to add drums. It wasn't. It wasn't as simple as that for us. So it's more organic than that, and that's tough to do on the road. Yeah, and I mean, I've seen. I think I when I had delusions of uh, or just ideas in my head from what I had seen as a kid. Like I remember watching videos of Bob Dylan typing on his typewriter with a documentary filmmaker filming him, and Joan Baez in the corner, and he's writing when the ship comes in or something. 
And I was like, man, I can't do that. I need total privacy. Even if I think somebody in the next room in the hotel we're staying, I can hear me. I can't write. So huh. I'm, I'm more temperamental that way. So I heard you. <laughs> so <laughs> you were in the hotel room yeah, next to him. <laughs> sometimes I trick myself into thinking someone can't, but um, some people are less or more temperamental with that. And I think Dylan was an example of a, a total maniac who could kind of do it wherever and that's not who, who I am at all. Well, gosh, we should hear some more music. So why don't we listen to more of Ophelia? This is the, the second verse. I, I got a new girlfriend. He feels like he's on top. This is a song about falling in love, but it's not falling in love with a, a person, I understand. Yeah, so Ophelia was written in this sort of stream of consciousness way, and it was about falling in love with the fame or the attention side of things that's so temperamental and so temporary in the music world. You're the bright, shiny toy for a period of time, and then then the baby's going to pick out another one, and you're just going to have to deal with that. <laughs> and so for me, I never really wanted to fall in love with any of that because I always viewed it as, you know, someone kind of liking you for something that's not necessarily all you. It's the Mm. moment. You two kind of locked yourself away in a house in Denver to write this new album. It was a house sort of hidden in plain sight in uh, in Denver and nothing particularly that special about it other than it was going to allow us to do what we originally were doing. You know, all of our lives was writing music together in very plain and ordinary circumstances you know there's this old upright piano that uh actually got sent out from my old house in ramsey new jersey where we both grew up and we've written a lot of stuff on that because it's just kind of this old kind of dirtbag piano for lack of a better description (laughs) is it in tune sometimes yeah (laughs) sometimes it's in tune and it gets the job done and there's something about it that's just great so that was always that was the staple and then wes had all his guitars on these racks and we had a computer to record the ideas and microphones, but it's it's mostly me and a piano, Wes and a guitar. And once the song starts to get legs in that environment, you know, very stripped down, open mic style, then we start to flesh it out. We never ever go into Pro Tools or the recording environment thinking, let's lay this down and we'll, we'll figure it out later in post-production. We'll add delay or mm. insane drums. It's always a very simple idea that has to reveal itself. And so by the time you get to the studio, it's pretty much laid out. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty well formed, most of the album. Yeah, the only song that didn't follow that formula of being done before going into the studio is Angela. Strangers in this town They raise you up just to cut you down Oh, Angela, it's a long time coming we were going to rent the house in Denver. It was in the same neighborhood that we originally moved to. We were walking around with the, the lady showing us, and then we're like, we're going to be honest, we're in a band, and we're going to be making music here, and her face just dropped. We were already, like, exed, you know, we were out at that point. And so she's kind of, like, not really going to rent it to us. And I was like, no, we're, we're going to work normal hours. We don't have jobs. This is our job. Uh, we're in the Lumineers, and, and she just was like, wait what and then she started coming around maybe she would rent us this house (laughs) and then we kept really normal business hours we would work you know nine to five or ten to six and so the neighbors never knew what we were doing in there once no one ever knocked on the door to tell us to turn it down 
like Jerry was saying, it was kind of hidden in plain sight in the sense of they would never suspect that someone would be working on an album. The way we make songs is so small. You know, it starts in such a small way that you don't really hear someone wailing on drums most of the day. So it was kind of a funny experience to one of the few times we've name dropped to try to get something. And it worked. It, it worked, yeah. Wesley, I want to ask you a little bit about your vocals. So on the track Ophelia and then on another one, Long Way From Home, you let your voice crack. Got a little paycheck, you got it seems like a vulnerable thing to do as a vocalist. Is, and I don't know, is it a flaw in your voice or is it just a quality of your voice? How do you perceive it? It's something I really like about my voice, I guess, if you could say that. I know I listen to, I think it's called Mother, John Lennon. Uh, Mother, you held me, but I never held you. That whole, and then he his voice starts to break throughout that song. And that's one of the things I admired about his uh, ability to push his voice to the limit to where it's breaking. It's actually kind of distorting. And uh, I remember seeing a comment from someone saying that there's a, actually a vocal issue on some social media thing about the recording engineer must have screwed up because there's a clip in Ophelia. And it's not. It's just my voice actually kind of Naturally reaching, doing pushing that. to the max. And so it makes for an interesting moment every night singing that moment too. But I really like going there because I do like feeling like I can be vulnerable up there. I think that's... I'm not a ham. I'm not an entertainer, you know, by my nature. So when I go on stage, that comes from a very different place than, than let's say, a lot of other people. It's very – it takes, me, show, it takes a lot sh- out of me. Yeah, and it's not showing off. Right. So I think it, it gets pulled up, almost conjured up from a different place in, in me. And so I think that helps me to uh, to go there is to have those moments like vocally. It reminded me of – I heard Samuel L. Jackson saying that, you know, he has a, he had a really bad stutter, but if he said mother, he could totally not stutter. It was like, it helped him get over that. And for me shouting like that, it helps me sort of get over this tension inside of me. All right. From vocal quality to lyrical quality, there is a lyric in the song long way from home, which also features that lovely kind of vocal crack. Um, and, and the lyric stood out to me. It's so simple. Hospital gowns never fit like they should. Hospital gowns never fit like they should. We yelled at the nurse, didn't do good. So many of us can identify with that being in that awkward gown in the doctor's office. How does that make it into a song? It's one of my favorite songs because it's sort of it was cathartic to write. You know, I was like, it was one of the only songs I can remember where I was writing lyrics and being in tears. And then going back to the guitar and singing more and crying again and then, you know, not and writing. And it was about losing my dad. And I remember the final night, that scene I'm setting is, uh, at the end of it, it says, more morphine, the last words you spoke. And that was the last thing he said. He was in so much pain. He was calling out for relief of that. And that's what he said. It was a very odd thing to hear your dad say as his, like, last words. More morphine, the last words you moan. At last I was sure that you weren't far away Let's take a break, then return to our conversation with Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights of the Lumineers. Their new album is called Cleopatra. Coming up, the story of how the Denver band accidentally got its name. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. More now of my conversation with two members of the Denver band The Lumineers, Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freitz. Their sophomore release is called Cleopatra. Grief seems to be something of a motivator for the Lumineers. I mean, you said that you grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey, both of you. Um, You make Denver your home now. But uh, Wesley, you were close friends with Jeremiah's older brother, Josh, who passed away in his late teens. And I understand, uh, Jeremiah, that that incident really led you to music and, and finding solace in it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not so easy as, you know, the passing of that <clears throat> occurrence. And then I discovered music. You know, I went through a lot of years of not really caring about anything and having a lot of anger and sadness and not really understanding what to do with all that grief. So I think, I think throughout high school and then into college around that time meeting Wes, it was like this big buildup of, I just kind of threw myself trying to throw myself into something positive and constructive because with that amount of grief, your system is overloaded and doesn't know what to do. You're kind of in this freak out moment where nothing really makes sense and you feel kind of jaded and sort of a lot of anger. So I felt like, you know, um, experiencing something like that, I'm trying to do something right with it. You know, it's like you're given this this experience that you can't change whether you want to or not, and you have to deal with it in some way. So I think turning life experiences into to music is great. I mean, whether it's something big, like losing a family member prematurely, or whether it's waiting in line at the bank and seeing something interesting from another customer. It's like... Wait, has that happened? Have you written a song based on a bank trip? No, I have not written a song, but I've been in banks or maybe a Safeway uh, shopping line and you just see things that are so minuscule in the grand scheme of life that are so fascinating and interesting that David Byrne talked about, like he says love is too big of an idea to him and he talks about writing about like a lamp or something and (laughs) it's just kind of an interesting take. I mean, he's a profound lyricist. He knows that, but he's also kind of poking fun at don't take life too seriously. There's there's like the minuscule is beautiful too, I think. And David Byrne from Talking Heads. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, that kind of goes back to the hospital gown. I mean, granted, that was a really heavy time in your life, Wesley, but it's this tiny detail that allowed me to connect with you, you know, as a listener of the album. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that, um, not the irony, I feel like we never use that word correctly, but the odd thing about songwriting is that uh, the more you can tell your story and the details of that story, it's funny, but people seem to sort of take them on as their own. And, yeah. and, and it's inspiring. It makes you want to, as an artist, dig dig deeper and go deeper because it it's a good cathartic thing to have have happen. Jeremiah. And as a huge compliment to that lyric, it reminds me in, in a similar way. I was a huge fan of uh, the show Breaking Bad. And in the pilot, the first episode, um, Walter White is being diagnosed with terminally ill cancer and has maybe six months left to live. And Walter White's character looks at the doctor and says, you have mustard on the collar of your shirt. And the doctor says, did, did you understand what I just told you? And he said, yeah, yeah, I got it. But you have like this mustard. And it was just this really surreal. He's kind of ignoring this this massive thing and sort of shining light on something very mundane. Mundane, but it's all part of the same, I don't know, essence. Tapestry and, or something. Yeah, tapestry. And, yeah. There's a lot of imagery in the song, uh, Gun Song. It was a pistol, a Smith & Wesson, holy, holy. This song was also in the time when my dad had just passed away. And uh, so soon after that that the the clothes were still in his drawers. And so I was running late for work 
uh, and realized I didn't have black socks and I knew I'd be sent home without those. So, um, you were a waiter or something. Yeah. I was a bartender at a, a pretty crappy job. And, um, I ended up reaching into his sock drawer in a hurry. I was running late and, uh, unexpectedly pulling out his pistol that I didn't know he ever had or had in there, much less. I was disappointed that I couldn't ask him about it. That was the first emotion. And the second was, what else did I know about this person that I was supposedly so close with? And then it became true that that was true of any relationship I had. You know, we, we have these different things that we don't share. And uh, I also, from a standpoint of lyrics, it was it was an interesting song because each verse sort of takes on this... Um, says, I don't want a single gun, but if I did, you'd be the one to hold it, aim it. And you think it's all of a sudden a bad thing. And then it says, make all the bad men run, like protecting me. I don't own a single gun, but if I did, you'd be the one to hold it, aim it, make all of the bad. So each verse kind of takes that on, that challenge of presenting something and then almost like a funhouse mirror, shifting it into this brand new direction. I try to do that on each verse uh, lyrically. People are going to say you're a band, uh, you know, based in Colorado. This is about gun control. (laughs) I guess they will. Yeah, I think it's an important thing that we all need to talk about, but the, the song wasn't written with an intention like that. I think that happens a lot in politics and and music. Well, speaking of of names, so that's Gun Song. Um, I want to get to the name of the Lumineers. I understand that it was not your name to begin with, and in fact, you took it on kind of by accident, Jeremiah. Yeah, we were uh, sort of given the name. You know, you don't really, you don't choose your first name when you're born, and it's kind of the same thing. We were under a different moniker at the time. and Which was? Uh, which was Wesley Jeremiah. Wesley Jeremiah. Deeply creative. <laughs> really? <Wow. laughs> right? Yeah. We just <laughs> forgot the word band at the end of that. <laughs> which yeah. proved to be a troublesome name at times because the sound guy, you know, it, he would think it was one person showing up. And it, it was not one person. It was Is a, there a Wesley Jeremiah in the house, in yeah. other words? Yeah, yeah, yeah I exactly. see. Okay. So, yeah, the guy said, uh, up next, Lumineers are playing... And I think Wes politely corrected him and said, you know, that's not our name, but uh, we're called, you know, we would start playing our set. And then maybe that night or a couple of days after we thought, what was that name? That was pretty cool. So the the real Lumineers at the time did not show up and you just kind of went on stage? Yeah. So they were there the next week, the same slot. <laughs> uh, you know, he just had his weeks mixed up, which is odd in, its, in and of itself because you never really have an announcer at shows. It's like a 1950s idea of like, up next, we have the Lumineers. Like it wasn't – that never happens at clubs. But for some reason, it was at this particular club. And he was on the wrong week on his pages. So so is there some dude who who still thinks of himself as the Lumineer? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we looked them up. We added the – so it became the Lumineers and never really expected to use it because that's just the essence of how you think. We weren't thinking that far ahead. We just thought it sounds good. It fits. We'll figure it out later. And for um, anyone that's ever tried to come up with band names, it's a horrible, agonizing process. Everything sounds stupid and yeah. it's just – It's bad. It's and really we, hard. We were pretty good at making bad band names. But uh, the other thing about it was uh, they stole it from a, a dental veneer company 
So a dental veneer company. Yeah. So when you look up the Lumineers today, <laughs> yeah. What will come up first is this dental veneer company, and they're paying a lot of money to come up first on those. Wait, results. really? You guys aren't first? No, because they're they're bribing Google, the, legally bribing. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm Lumineers. I want to try this. They should be at the top. Of those. Like, at no, least. you guys. Really? You guys have moved on, past the the veneers. No. Yeah. Let Even me show you the, the screen. Top? Yeah. The Lumineers oh, on weird. sale now. Buy tickets. Maybe they gave up. Look up the Lumineers. The Lumineers. Lumineers teeth. That comes up first in the automatic. Nope. It's you guys. You oh, we did have it. made it. Yeah. This is the day. I'm so glad I could be here for this moment. <laughs> I've always wanted to beat the dental community out. It's always been a little dream. What I find remarkable about this, this latest album is that the instrumentation is really pretty straightforward, but the sound is huge. Yeah. And you're not achieving a huge sound, you know, through like auto-tune and all the kind of stuff that a lot of pop music has today. How are you doing that? I think that it's so much of the credit needs to go to Ryan Hewitt, the engineer of this album. He really dialed in these sounds and tones and just overall aesthetic to a degree that I didn't think could exist. I mean, he really knocked it out of the park. Are you playing really hard on the instruments? Sometimes, yeah, and that really can elicit a better sound. You know, a for example, a light like snare drum versus a loud hit snare drum will be recorded differently. Even though in post you can turn up the volume, you want to be recording it at its optimal intensity. And I think that they found a great room for Wes to do vocals and sometimes vocals and guitar together. Mm. And that can really break through that the barrier between listener and, and writer. Things like that were implemented in just such a smart way. Yeah, and if I could just piggyback off that, I think um, I think there was an onus put on what sounds were going into the mic, not what we could do with them once they were recorded. So a lot of time was spent, like scientists testing out different amps until we got the one. I tried six or seven different vocal mics before we settled on the one that was this weird Russian mic. That, and I think putting an onus on that means it's kind of less work at the end of the day, but it also sounds better because you're not in post uh, putting all these effects on things and trying to give them steroids. They're already sounding big uh, naturally. It's a weird Russian mic? Is it Soviet? It's I don't think old. it's that old. Okay, okay. Yeah. No, it's it's this white Russian mic that I probably couldn't pronounce uh, that just happened to sound good when I would sing on it versus the other ones. I want to go out uh, with one of your older songs. A little strange, I know, because you have a new album. But this is a song about uh, a candidate, and it's an election year, so it's been stuck in my mind. This track is called... It's called The Big Parade. The Big Parade. Uh, do you want to say a few words about it? It was originally called Mob Rule, uh, and every verse is a new vignette. And I, the idea I loved playing with was that every verse involves a big crowd. Um, so in the beginning, it almost seems like it's a, you know, it's a funeral for a, a famous politician, but then it's actually the guy just coming down in a victory parade. And the next scene is about you know, a boxer walking to the ring. And every scene involves just a, a large crowd and, and the backstory behind that. And, that was the challenge of writing. And I think it has this sort of sister quality to it, it's almost related to Cleopatra in the way of it's this it's this bigger song lyrically. It, it tackles a lot more than, than some of the other tracks. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And oh my my, oh hey, hey, here he comes, the candidate. Blue eyed boy, United States, vote for him, 
the candidate Diamonds cut Diamonds cut for the carrots Plaster of Paris The floats fill up the street Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freitz are two-thirds of the Denver band The Lumineers. Their new album is Cleopatra. Kareem Maddox and Stephanie Wolf produced today's show. We had help from Rachel Estabrook, Kara Schiff, Matt Herz, and Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.